Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. and welcome back to NucleCast. I, of course, am your host, Adam Lowther, and I am uh, pleased to have with me this evening, Miss Patty Jane Geller. So Patty Jane, if you don't know her, she's a young gun, an up-and-coming star in the nuclear world. Patty Jane has a degree from Georgetown. She is also an Air Command and Staff College graduate from Maxwell Air Force Base, where I spent about a decade. So I'm familiar with ACSC. She worked for Elise Stefanik on the Hill before moving to the Senate Armed Services Committee and then joining the Heritage Foundation, where she is now the senior policy analyst who is handling nuclear strategy, nuclear policy, all things nuclear for the Heritage Foundation. So with that, Patty Jane, welcome into NucleCast. Thanks so much, Adam. It's awesome to join you guys. Yeah, so tonight I wanted to talk about a number of issues with you. Uh, number one, let me ask you, so as a former Hill staffer and, and Heritage, I've been involved with Heritage since, I th- you, you might have been in diapers when <laughs> I first started dealing with Heritage. No, I'm not that young. <laughs> so, so Heritage has long focused on the Hill and trying to influence the Hill. And it oftentimes brings folks from the Hill because Hill experience is important. And so as somebody who's focused on the Hill, who's worked on the Hill, uh, I want to talk about Slickham Men. Mm-hmm. So could you maybe for the, for the audience, just remind them what is Slickham in and then tell us why it was in the 2018 NPR, and then it was cut from the, the latest NPR, but Congress has decided to uh, slide a bit, a little bit of money in for Slickham N. What's the story there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Slickham N, uh, sea-launched cruise missile, nuclear, uh, it's a nuclear on, nuclear-armed cruise missile that we can put on uh, attack submarines or even surface ships uh, that we can deploy you know, directly to a theater of conflict to the Indo-Pacific or the uh, European seas. Um, and it was initially proposed in the 2018 NPR uh, to fill a gap in U.S. Uh, non-strategic or regional nuclear capabilities. Um, we, we know that Russia ha- is, has been growing its arsenal of, of at least 2,000 um, non-strategic nuclear weapons, which are those um, not defined by the New START Treaty. They're not uh, strategic systems that, you know, might be able to strike the U.S. homeland, but shorter range, lower yield systems like a short range missile or a torpedo. Um, and the U.S. only has a couple of hundred of these tactical weapons uh, in the form of gravity bombs. Uh, and then in the Indo-Pacific, it's a whole other story. China deploys hundreds of dual capable theater range missiles capable of striking uh, out to Guam in the in the Indo-Pacific. And the United States forward deploys no nuclear weapons over there. 
Um, so the Slick Amendment was proposed for the, the very purpose of deterring uh, the limited use of nuclear weapons. Um, and believe it or not, that's, you know, the very scenario that uh, we're seeing uh, that we're worried about in Ukraine today. Putin uses a low yield nuclear weapon. Uh, what do we do? What capabilities do we have? You know, now it's Ukraine, but what happens if next time uh, it's NATO? So when Biden decided to cancel the Slick Amendment, uh, I, I couldn't understand why, you know, this is, you know, we're behind in our nuclear capabilities. Uh, we're facing, facing growing threats. Um, what was the point? And, you know, I wish I knew more. Um, we haven't gotten an unclassified version of the nuclear posture review yet, even though that was uh, due, due months ago, I believe. Uh, and all I've really heard out of the Biden administration is that they're, they're canceling this weapon um, to meet the political goal of reducing the role of nuclear weapons, which I haven't seen a good, you know, na how does that help our national security or is it just for, for politics here? Um, and so next you asked me about uh, Congress. Congress decided to reverse that decision. Um, and so we saw the, the House of Representatives, they actually uh, voted the whole House to to authorize funding for the slick amend to keep it going and then on the senate side as well uh, the senate armed services committee voted to authorize funding for slick amend and then the senate appropriations committee for defense voted to or, or their bill would uh, authorize funding for slick amend as well um this is significant because uh, we have to remember that it's it's biden's own party the democrats that are um, controlling these committees, controlling these houses here, and uh, they decided to reverse the Biden administration's decision. Um, and I, I can talk a bit why I think that happened, if you'd like. I don't know if you yeah, want to tell me why. Why did it happen? Yeah, why did it happen? Um, so I, I think there, you know, the like I said, there wasn't, I think Congress couldn't see the, the justification uh, that I couldn't see either from Biden administration to cancel it. Uh, they had several senior military leaders come testify on behalf of the Slick Men. You had uh, Admiral Richard, the Stratcom commander, uh, General Milley, the uh, chairman of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the the vice chairman as well, um, General Walters of UCOM, uh, all told Congress that uh, we need this weapon, you know, for the reason that I discussed. There's there's a gap in those tactical weapons, and the U.S. needs something to deter to improve our deterrence of limited nuclear use. Um, and I, yeah, and I think Congress saw that it became clear. Um, there was about $45 million authorized for the Slick Amend. Uh, it's not quite enough to, to keep the program going on its schedule, but I think what's significant here is the policy decision uh, that we need this weapon and uh, the Biden administration's decision wasn't the way to go. So if we, I guess one of the questions that some of our podcast listeners might have is, you know, so Slickerman, it's it's a cruise missile. It's a naval cruise missile. Um, they might say, well, you know, why do we really need it? You know, what is it? Why is the the president wrong and his team? Why, why would they be wrong in saying, hey, we've got sufficient capability. We don't really need this. Yeah. So I already talked about the, the numeric gap in regional tactical nuclear weapons between the U.S. and its adversaries. Um, but it, it seems to me like you're asking why aren't the current forces we have already sufficient? Um, but I, I think if that were the case, you wouldn't see such, you know, an, an ongoing buildup from, from Russia or China. Uh, the, the, the status quo is changing so much. You know, Russia's 
um, supposed to increase that that arsenal of non-strategic nuclear weapons. Um, we, we know about China's strategic breakout and their hundreds of, of dual capable missiles. Um, if those adversaries are, are gaining an advantage by getting more of these non-strategic nuclear weapons. And if we do nothing, um, it, it only signals to our adversaries that um, that they can you know, that their, their buildups are okay. I also, you know, worse, I think it signals to our allies that we're, we're not concerned or we're not willing to, to do anything to try and address these new threats. I know that allies for sure uh, would benefit from the Slickham end because they can actually see a U.S. nuclear weapon, or maybe not see it with their own eyes, but know that it's there in their own regions. So one of the other significant questions that has been under consideration with the Nuclear Posture Review, and then the House, Adam, Congressman Adam Smith in particular, talked about this, is the issue of having a declaratory no first use policy or a sole use policy. And so you've had some in Congress who have advocated it. You've had some in mm -hmm. the administration who have advocated it. The NPR does not take a position on no first use or sole use. Could you maybe offer an explanation of what those are and what is it, what are the arguments for them and then what are the arguments against them? Sure, so no first use policy uh, and a sole, sole purpose policy, they're essentially the same thing. They both mean that the US would commit to never using nuclear weapons first in the conflict. Uh, so in other words, to say that the sole purpose of our nuclear arsenal is to deter um, nuclear attacks only. Uh, and the implication of those policies is that we would not use our uh, nuclear deterrent to deter non-nuclear threats like chemical, biological, major conventional uh, cyber attacks. Uh, and the arguments in favor of those policies is that, you know, I'm, I'm not really even sure. I think the argument was that this is a way to reduce the role of our nuclear weapons. Um, you know, maybe if we commit to never using nuclear weapons first, um, our adversaries will follow suit or they will, uh, you know, not be in a place where they think the U.S. is going to escalate and compel them to use our own nuclear weapons first. Um, but I, I think those policies were a bad idea. And I think it's clear that Biden came to the same conclusion. Um, and there are a couple of reasons. I think uh, the first, the, the worst case of declaring a no first use policy is that uh, our adversaries actually believe that we would never use nuclear weapons first. Um, that would mean that they could be emboldened to escalate right up to the, the nuclear threshold. Um, but as long as they don't cross it, no matter how big the, the chemical or biological weapons attack, they don't have to worry about um, a U.S. nuclear strike. You know, why would we do anything to make our adversaries worry less? We want to we want to complicate their decision making all the time. Um, and so that's that's the worst case. Uh, the, the best case is that our adversaries don't believe that we would never use nuclear weapons first, but our allies would. Uh, and, and that's a problem because our allies are the ones who have been kind of freaking out about the idea of a no first use policy. Uh, our, our allies are the ones who would be on th the front lines of a conflict with Russia or China. Uh, you know, we're likely to see conflict break out with Russia over NATO and China um, you know, over Taiwan or Japan. And, you know, they would be the ones likeliest to be subject to a chemical or a biological weapons attack. Um, so they were, they're very unnerved by a, a no first use or sole purpose policy. And with 
you know, we have some allies who have their own capability to, to build nuclear weapons if they wanted. Um, we also don't want to do anything to, to splinter NATO or to splinter our Indo-Pacific alliances because that's exactly what our adversaries want. Um, so, I, so I think the allies reason is a really big one for why the Biden administration ultimately rejected no first use or sole purpose, um, because I, I know that our allies were, were telling them, hey, please don't do this. I also know that our allies were going and talking to members of Congress saying, we're really worried by, th by this, you know, don't declare this policy. Um, Biden keeps talking about allies and partnerships, restoring those relationships. Um, and I'm sure members of Congress were communicating that to the White House as well. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. So an, another big question that I've, you know, I used to, whenever I was a, an Air Force guy, I would frequently go and speak to staffers on the Hill about nuclear issues, Russia, China, and other things, and the level of interest and knowledge mm. about nuclear issues amongst Hill staffers on the MLAs working for the members. You have, you have a few folks that are you know, permanent staff members on HASC and SAS that are pretty knowledgeable um, and they've been there a while. But am amongst in particular, you know, the, the average member uh, staffer, even MLAs because they're generally young, the knowledge is pretty low and the interest is pretty low because, you know, if, if you don't have a nuclear base in your district mm -hmm. or in your state, or you don't make you don't have a weapons lab, or you don't have a component of the nuclear enterprise. It's largely something you don't think about. So, if you, having been a staffer, were to think through how you might improve both knowledge and interest amongst Hill staff, what sort of thoughts or suggestions might you have? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um... I guess I'll start by uh, giving the shameless plug for uh, Heritage's work. Um, you know, our goal is just that, to, to write policy papers that uh, are easily digestible by Hill staffers. You know, they're not super long reports. They're usually pretty short papers with recommendations. Uh, we like to do uh, lunches and briefings for Hill staffers. And, you know, you have organizations like ANWA putting on a bunch of events to, to educate more as well. Um, Aside from that, I think it's important to, to talk about why um, not enough staffers know or are interested in nukes. I, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is 
um, just because nuclear, up until recently, nuclear weapons, they have been generally viewed, you know, by, by Congress or the public as kind of a relic of the Cold War. Uh, you know, they're super relevant against the Soviet Union. Um, last 20 years, we've been more focused on counterterrorism. We haven't heard about nukes as much um, in, until, of course, recently. So I, I think that, um, unfortunately, Putin and Xi might do a decent job of renewing the interest in, in nuclear weapons. We're, you know, we're seeing Putin's nuclear threats in Ukraine. Uh, Ad Admiral Richard, the STRATCOM commander, just last week actually labeled them. I think it was, he said there, we were seeing thinly veiled nuclear coercion on the part of Russia. Um, you know, and then we're all hearing about China's crazy strategic breakout. So, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that it's these threats that, that might, that it might take to get more interest. But I think I, I've definitely seen more Hill staffers kind of take an interest and worry about it. Um, and the other reason we're not, why there might not be enough knowledge or interest is uh, simply because our, our nuclear um, production has been dormant for, you know, however long. It's only been recently that um, we we initiated or have really gotten going on our modernization programs of both delivery systems and um, the nuclear weapons complex as well. So I'm hoping that as that gets going more, you know, more districts, more states get more heavily involved as we spend more on those programs, uh, there will be even more instances. For instance, you see Senator Tester um, taking a huge interest in protecting the Sentinel missile program because of uh, what he's got those assets in his state. Um, so I think there's room to improve kind of naturally. We see where the trajectory is going. Um, and I guess the last thing I say, I think we need to focus, and, and by we, I kind of mean the royal we, is focusing more on getting that message out that nuclear weapons are the number one priority for national security. Uh, you know, Admiral Richard has done a good job at, at spewing that message. Our nuclear uh, arsenal is the backstop to all of our other operational plans. Um, you know, I, I'm at least trying my best to get that message out. You, you hear Secretary Austin, uh, the, the SECDEF, saying that nuclear deterrence is number one priority. Um, you know, I wish we saw that reflected a little bit more in policy, uh, you know, not canceling Slickaman or for instance, but um, I think, I think that's, that's important kind of drilling that message. Cause even if, even though we're not employing nuclear weapons daily, like, you know, in the way that we're sending our uh, carrier strike groups around, they are number one. And if we don't get nukes right, then uh, I don't think we'll be in a good place. Now, let me pose what I sort of my theory as it relates yeah. to uh, integrated deterrence. So, you know, I've, I'm a prospect theory guy and prospect theory says that we overweight risks and losses and we undervalue gains. And so I think that's particularly relevant when it comes to nuclear deterrence, because with nuclear conflict, you have a very severe loss. And mm. so your fear of taking that loss means that you are risk, a risk-averse actor. And that works really, really well whenever it comes to nuclear. I don't think it holds as well with diplomacy or information or economics. You know, we think about the dime. Um, and so therefore, as we think about integrated deterrence, and you're trying to substitute, you know, diplomacy, information, you know, in the dime, there's diplomacy, information, military, and economics. And the nuclear, you know, use of nuclear weapons is the M in dime. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the DI and the E, 
I don't see from a prospect theory view that there are really significant losses that an adversary would fear that would make them highly risk averse in the same way that when it comes to the use of nuclear weapons, they're like, oh, geez, man, Armageddon is our big fear. We don't want to mess with that. Let's let's be risk, you know, let's be careful. I don't see that when if you start to try to say, oh, we'll, you know, we'll substitute economic, you know, sanctions, you know, other, or we'll, you know, we'll use diplomatic means. I don't see prospect theory holding and creating that risk aversion that I do with the military. So therefore, thus far, I would say I'm unsettled as to whether integrated deterrence will work. Yeah. You know, what, what, what say you? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, integrated deterrence, it, it makes sense as kind of a national strategy. You know, of course, you need to use all elements of the dime, all, all tools of power um, to pursue our interests. But uh, integrated deterrence is the Department of Defense's strategy, but the DOD doesn't do diplomacy. Um they do military. So, so why are we putting all these other things into the, you know, the military tool? And um, like you said, I, I, I'm worried that that will leave room um, for, for things like diplomacy or economic to, to replace rather than augment um, the military tool, because this idea that we can solve problems through diplomacy, um, you know, we can only the reason diplomacy works is when we have the backing of a strong military force. You know, I don't, I don't think that they're, um, you know, two things that you can raise or lower um, or like replace for one or other. I mean, you, you know, you have to have both. So this idea of integrated deterrence, uh, you know, I, I hope it doesn't mean at least that we're going to be using less military by the DOD, even though that's, you know, their job to, to make sure we have a strong military so we can utilize all of those other tools. Some of the other things that worries me is, so if, if deterrence stability equals capability times will, mm-hmm. um, I, I wonder, you know, our adversaries are clearly looking at each individual administration and each president, and they're saying, will that guy use nuclear weapons? Will that guy respond with military force? Because they understand you know, American politics is sort of an up and down. Mm-hmm. It's it's not stable. We we they you know, although the Russians may have Vladimir Putin for the last twenty plus years, we're never going to have a national leader in power for twenty plus years. It's just not our system, and we tend to sort of go, you know, Republican Democrat, Republican Democrat, and you see vast swings in in policies. And I wonder, do you think? that those changes in administration, those mm-hmm. changes largely in very distinct worldviews and how you know, a Republican or a Democrat seeks to solve a problem, do you think that that, that shift back and forth is having an impact on the, you know, on the stability and on the perception of will that our mm-hmm. adversaries may have? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. You know, half of deterrence is uh, capability. So, so that might not change so much between presidents, but will, when it comes to will, I do think a president's, um, you know, rhetoric and what he does and says matters. Um, you know, you know, say what you want about Trump, but 
our adversaries that they didn't know what he was going to do. He was that, that could have had a, you know, an effect. Um, but I worry that, you know, Biden, even though he didn't ultimately choose a no first use policy, for instance, the fact that he wanted to do it so badly makes me worried that our adversaries might kind of remember that and say like, well, this guy doesn't want to use nuclear weapons. I don't know. I could be wrong, but that, but it worries me a little bit. Um, and also, you know, things, things that this administration has done, like, uh, cancel Minuteman three tests. That That's something we can talk about um, t- today. For the, for the third time this year, uh, the administration delayed or canceled uh, a, a routine scheduled test of our uh, Minuteman three ICBM. Um, and, you know, one time is one thing, but three times in a row, um, you know, worries me a little bit. What, what's this pattern here? Yeah. So, you know, Congress is large, you know, they largely, I mean, they declare war, obviously, but they largely fund the DOD, that's their primary function in our system is they, they fund the DOD. And then they have some, you know, some ability to shape policy and shape the direction of DOD. Uh, but I wonder if I, I see all of these, you know, a few years ago, there was a very sort of, there was a, amongst the disarmament community, it was the idea of the trillion dollar triad, the trillion mm. dollar triad. It's too expensive. We can't afford it. And as I started, you know, sitting down and because I like to look and compare the costs of things. And so, for example, you know, the the uh, the nuclear enterprise for the last 20 plus years has cost the United States about the same amount of money as Americans spend on Coca-Cola each year. Yeah. Not Pepsi, not RC, mm-hmm. not Diet Coke, Coke, just Coke. Just Coke, that, that's in, you know, I did the calculations and the average American taxpayer spends about $172 a year. That's just taxpayers. If you ain't paying taxes, I'm not including you. <laughs> so just taxpayers, it's about 172 bucks a year on the, you know, what is ultimately, you know, sovereignty insurance. It's, so it's essentially, it's less than a cup of Starbucks coffee a week is what I'm asking you. And And I get that three times a week. Yeah, exactly. So, and then, then, then I was looking at uh, waste, fraud and abuse. And I've mentioned this before, waste, fraud and abuse in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. And so the center for for Mm -hmm. Medicare CMS center for Medicare services uh, reports Mm -hmm. that they, that they lose about $70 billion a year in waste, fraud, and abuse, and wow. abuse in Medicare and Medicaid. That's more than the nuclear enterprise would cost at the height of modernization. And yeah. nobody's screaming that we can't afford that waste and abuse. Mm. Nobody complains. Yeah. And so how do we more effectively explain to Capitol Hill that, you know, the nuclear enterprise isn't, it's certainly not what's bankrupting the, you know, the country. It's, it's not right. an expensive line item. It's less than 5% of the defense budget. It's less than one-tenth of 1% of the federal budget. H- how, do, how would you and I mm-hmm. more effectively convince, you know, those individual MLAs mm-hmm. that this is not an expensive line item? Yeah, I mean, there have been so many attempts. You know, we, we have the less than 5 6% of the defense budget, 
less than like 0.01% of the total total federal budget. Um, I, I don't know why it's it's not sticking. You know, pe- some members of Congress, some think tank people like to go after the high cost, but you don't really see them going after the high costs of other things like um, like ships, for instance. Um, but I think something that we need to explain um, is, is that, again, you know, nuclear weapons are a number one priority. And when you're building a budget, um, your number one priority is what goes in first. You know, we seem to think like that we can't spend an extra dime on nuclear weapons because we have other things to fund. But if it's your number one priority, that's what you get. You know, if you're if you're going to the grocery store and you only have 20 bucks and you're you're making a you know chicken for dinner, you got to buy the chicken. And then you if you, you you buy the spices and the uh, vegetables you have left over for it. It's the same thing. Um you know, you you put nuclear weapons in the budget first, and then you see where you can go. And we're kind of thinking opposite right now, where you know we can't spend another dime on slick men. And I don't, I think that I think it's the complete wrong way of looking at this priority. And I, it kind of goes back to our other conversation of we need to wake up more to the the uh, the, the importance nuclear weapons are the backstop. Um, nothing would work if nuclear if our nuclear force isn't right. Now I would argue that. For some reason, and I'm not 100% sure, nuclear weapons have, it's almost, they have a theological element to them. So they're not just one of many weapons that we purchase. They're, they're one of the few things that you, there's an attribution of morality hmm. to an inanimate object. And I, I've never quite understood this and nobody's been able to quite explain it. Do you know why many folks, particularly in the disarmament community, sort of take this almost theological view of, of nuclear weapons? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the best I can do is um, think about how, the, you know, the, they see the destructive power of nuclear weapons. You know, they're the only weapons we have that can existentially threaten another state, um, cause unprecedented destruction. Um, and, and I think all that is true, but the issue is that uh, the Russians don't see it that way. If you look at, you know, past Soviet, um, you know, behavior and writings and doctrine, they, they see nuclear weapons as just um, another weapon. You know, they're just they're more powerful missiles than, than what they other have than than what they already have. Um, and this difference in view is dangerous because it might lead us to, to think you know, we would never use nuclear weapons first. Like it's, it's totally impossible. We can never do it. But the Russians, they might think it's, we, we don't want to use them, but it's another level of uh, escalation in war. Um, and, you know, we always talk about how we can't mirror image and things like that, but I'm, I'm worried that, that we're, you know, taking our own culture that kind of has developed as, you know, nuclear weapons are horrible, uh, destruction in Japan was horrible, all that totally true, but we need to, you know, look at them with clear eyes and, you know, see what our adversaries are doing and realize that we, um, we might, we're going to have to play them at their own game if, if we don't want them to be taking the advantage. So let's, let me, you know, we're about out of time. So I want to give you my, my little genie in the bottle. And okay. I want to give you the chance to rub that genie that that you know lamp and and the genie pops out and you have one wish Ooh, what is your one wish my one wish um my 
saying slick a man is kind of lame because we know that I like the slick a man. I've been talking about it. My my one wish is for Congress. My one wish is for Congress to you know take very seriously um, the new China threat, China nuclear threat. Uh, you know, our nuclear force posture was designed for the, the 2010 nuclear threat environment. Um, when we designed our ongoing modernization posture, our modernization plans, we didn't predict a Chinese strategic breakout. And my worry is that we're not going to change, do anything to change our force posture, do anything about this new threat we're seeing. Uh, so my one wish is that I'm wrong about that. And then and that Congress steps up and they, uh, you know, lose the taboo against you know, new nuclear weapons or more nuclear weapons. And they, um, we see them step up to the plate and get us what we need for, for the threats of today and the future. How's that? All right. Wonderful. So, well, we are out of time. So I want to thank Patty Jane Geller from the Heritage Foundation for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast and talking to Congress, Slick Man, No First Use. And, uh, many sort of many interesting topics of course so thanks again for joining us and uh we will certainly have you back on nuclear Cast.